Hello, 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 and welcome to the Analytive Podcast. Today on the podcast, I have a good friend of mine, Melanie Yuli. Mel is the visionary founder of Philanthropy Expert. Um, she views philanthropy as a true vocation. She previously worked as senior development director at one of the largest foundations in the country. Her many years of professional experience include philanthropic development, political fundraising, and nonprofit management. Throughout her career, she has raised tens of millions of dollars, literally has raised tens of millions of dollars. Um, this lady knows how to raise a lot of money for organizations, resulting in a significant impact for a broad range of candidates and organizations. She currently mentors mid-level development professionals through a university-led leadership program, the Institute for Leadership in Development. She has been featured on the Today Show, Fox News, within the Associated Press, the Denver Post, the Wall Street Journal, on Martha Stewart, and dozens of other national and international news outlets. Um, as we talk about in the podcast, she even for a while was the host of her own uh, show on the Travel Channel, 1,000 Places uh, to See Before You Die. Mel received her Bachelor's of Art in International Political Economics from Colorado College. In today's podcast, we cover fundraising, uh, how to ask for money, um, how major gift, uh, gifts programs work, how to develop relationships through curiosity, and so much more. It was a fantastic episode. Uh, I learned a ton. Even if you are not in the nonprofit space, which I know many of you are not, there are some real gems in here about asking for money and developing relationships that I think will be extremely valuable. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mel Yuli. Good morning, Mel. Thank you so much for coming on the Analytive Podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you, Tyler. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so we've met through Loco Think Tank, sort of a peer advisory mastermind group here in Fort Collins. And I was super intrigued by your, your story and background. So we, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But um, how do you spend your days right now? Because you're at Philanthropy Expert, and I know a little bit about what you do, but I'd love for you to talk about um, the company and, and what you guys do. So Philanthropy Expert... Um we started the company, honestly, I wish I could remember. We, we need a timeline somewhere. I think it was like 10 years ago. <laughs> it could have been nine. I don't know. Um, I should be able to figure it out by the age of my kids. But I, anyway, I haven't done that. Sure. Um, so I think it's like nine or 10 years old. Um, and we have a small team of five. And they're based in Denver. Um, and now um, in the pandemic and post-pandemic world, we have gone totally virtual. So we don't have an office anymore. Everybody's working from home. Um, our core business is fundraising for nonprofits. Um, and, and what does that mean? It could be event planning. It could be grant writing and foundation relations. It could be um, developing a major guest program. It could be running a major guest program. So we often are sort of the outs outsource development director for um, smaller nonprofits. Um, another piece of our business, we, a quarter of our business is political. And so we do um, some ballot initiatives and we've worked um, for a very long time with the mayor of Denver. Um, and then we have a little tiny piece that's philanthropic advising to corporations and family offices. Gotcha. So then let's break down. So events, foundations, gifts, all of those are in this fundraising bucket. Um, but when you, when a nonprofit either approaches you or, or potentially becomes a client, you have all of these options and maybe, especially if they don't have a, a gifts program or a lot of fundraising they've done in the past. I mean, how do you choose? How do you select? How do you break out like, oh, your nonprofit's a, a good fit for grants or it's a good fit for major gifts? Like breaking down that, what does that look like? I mean, typically, you know, if it's a really tiny operation, often they'll bring us in to do everything. Like they can't afford a full-time development director. So we'll just take over their entire development department for them. Um, and, and so that, that is often the case. Otherwise it's sort of looking at the breakdown of, you know, where your streams of revenue come from. You want to have a really balanced um, portfolio of giving. So you don't want to be overly reliant on government grants or on foundations or corporations or individuals. You want to have a really nice, healthy balance because if something happens like what we're experiencing now, um, you want to usually lean a little more toward individual giving, um, okay. which tends to be less sensitive than the others to the economy. 
Gotcha. Because yeah, if you are 70% grant funded and those grants go away or get cut, like that could be the end of your, your nonprofit. Absolutely. And we're seeing that like with organizations we're working with all over the country where they are heavily reliant on state revenue or city revenue. I mean, the state, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that the state of Colorado in the special session that the legislature did um, several weeks ago, I mean, I think they cut $4 billion out of the state um, budget. Wow. Like that's going to impact a lot of different nonprofits. So you don't want to be overly reliant on those funds. Yeah. And then what are you seeing? Cause we're recording this in August of 2020, you know, so we are, you know, some people say maybe at the tail end or maybe right before the second wave of coronavirus. I don't think anybody really knows where we're at in this journey. We're, but we're somewhere along the coronavirus journey yeah. um, beyond maybe Colorado or, or even maybe even more local to Denver. Like, what are you seeing? What trends should, you know, nonprofits, people in fuzz, fundraising be aware of or thinking about? Like, how is this shaping up so far? I mean, honestly, so far, I think the foundation community has been rock solid, like way more so in my experience than they were in 2008. Um, a lot of the foundations nationally um, have committed, there's a group called the um, Council on Foundations, and they created this pledge. And I, honestly, I, I, my, my data point's a few weeks old now, but I think they had 750 foundations signed on to this pledge. And the pledge was saying, you're going to provide more um, flexibility in grants. We're going to um, require less in terms of reporting and really talk to our grantees about what they need. And um, there's also a group um, led by Abby Disney and a couple other extremely wealthy families that have foundations that are trying to push Congress to require that um, foundations distribute more of their principal during over the next two to three years and require donor advised funds like a DAF was like my husband and I have a DAF a donor advised fund is like almost like a mini foundation and you would have it at a community foundation or a Fidelity or Schwab and and with a donor advised fund you're required to distribute nothing every year like ever you could just well, it yeah at the end of time which is terrible because that's not money that's circulating and helping nonprofits and constituents so requiring them to distribute 10% um, over the next two to three years. So I like, I think that's like leadership we've never really seen before, actually, from the foundation community. Um, corporate giving is definitely profoundly down. And so I okay. would, I mean, if, if people have a corporate giving program, I would basically put it on hold, you know, just check in with them, make sure that they're doing okay. And that's it. And then really double down on individuals, individuals. Right weather the storm like individuals also give emotionally and so often they're going to give even if their banker tells them not to or their wealth advisor right if they're passionate about your cause um, and believe in in the mission they want to continue to be a part of that as long as they can reasonably or sometimes even unreasonably afford that absolutely what's uh so foundation wise i mean what's different between now and and 08 you know is it because uh you know the economy kind of tanked but it looks positive now do you think that's helped foundations maybe open up their checkbooks like what do you think is, of, is the difference a lot of foundations kind of went underwater so that they were at the point where they actually could not distribute their minimum four and a half percent um because they didn't have a principal balance uh, that was enough to distribute. So, so a lot of foundations sort of froze then. Um, there were many that stepped up to the plate and said, like, we're going to give, we're going to, we're going to do everything we can. But yeah, I mean, I think the stock market has been so volatile and so up and down. Um, but I think a lot of lessons were learned in 08, um, mm. frankly, that was like, you know, Yes, you saw M&A between um, organizations, which I think was great. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the volume, the one and a half million or whatever we're at now of nonprofits that we have in this country is probably like 25 to 30% too many um, right. because there's like a lot of duplicative work. But um, I think that they did see that a lot of organizations that needed funds went away and a lot of people, you know, went hungry or homeless that really didn't need to um, because we let the, the safety net deteriorate so much in that time. So I think there was a lot of learning from there that makes gotcha. it. I also think the volatility of the market, like, you know, my, I look at like my portfolio, which is not amazing. We don't have, you know, any kind of immense wealth, but I look at it and it's like pretty close to where it was before, you know, right. yep. okay. Um, but I do think uncertainty, especially for corporations, uncertainty, 
is sometimes scarier than knowing like that the economy is mm. going to be terrible. Like it's bottomed out. It's awful. Like this is, you know, maybe it's even going to get worse, but it's really bad. But right now we're like, ah. And so, especially for corporations, that kind of like uncertainty, they just buckle down and freeze. Right. They're going to batten down the hatches and just sort of wait until they have, you know, because you don't want to give a lot away if you're going to need that capital later, but then you may not need it. But if you do and you, you know, you gave it away, then you're, you're in trouble. So yeah, totally. Gotcha. So let's start, uh, or let's maybe move back in your career. So how did you get here, right? How'd you get into to Gibson fundraising? You start wherever you want, you know, early career, college, like whatever makes the most sense in your story. So for me, I mean, I, my background is in political fundraising. So I, um, I mean, I started like volunteering in politics when I was eight years old. So I, I, that was a lifelong passion for me. Um, was like, so I'd start going door to door and then I'd like be doing sealing envelopes and doing mailers and stuff like that. And then um, after I graduated from college, I, um, I, had, I had gone to the Democratic Convention in 1996 and I um, met uh, then Senator Bill Bradley, who was like, a, you know, he was like, he was a Rhodes Scholar from Princeton. He, he played basketball at Princeton. He was a New York Knick. He like was this like really amazing Renaissance man, like highly intellectual, but also this incredible athlete mm-hmm. um, and just a cool person. And so I was like, if that guy runs for president, like I'm going to work for him. And so I did, but what's funny is I sent like a random, like cold letter. This is like kind of like, this is the beginning of email, right? So I didn't even send an email. I just sent like a letter with a story and, and whatever. It was really good, by the way. Um, You're like, basically asking him what, like, I just want to come work for you if you run for president? The campaign. And what's funny, this is also sort of like a side thing that I always tell people, like, you never know what what luck is on your side. You never know what part of your story is compelling, right? So the people who, a bunch of people on the campaign, he went to Princeton. And so a lot of the campaign staff was from Princeton. And there was a group of people who were like, no more Princeton um, grads on this campaign. Like we can't take any more Ivy Leaguers, that's it. And so I actually went to a private college. I went to Colorado College in Colorado Springs. But the people who picked up my resume did not know it was a private school and thought it was a public school. And they hired me because they thought that I went to a public school. <laughs> <laughs> like, we need someone from a state school. We yeah, have- there's like from Colorado. She's not from the East Coast. She went to a public school. She's in. And right. So- you, were, you were the diversity, if you will, in that campaign. Yeah, so the a little bit. who picked up my letter was the fundraising department. So that's how I got hired. Okay. Gotcha. And then where did you go from there then? So you worked on that campaign. I was in New Jersey, then New York um, for that campaign. And then I met um, Congresswoman DeGette, who was um, in Denver. She represented the first congressional district in Denver and still does. And she went to my high school and my college. I met her in Madison Square Garden at an event. And I like came up to her on the floor. I was like, I went to South. I went to CC. Like, I think you're really great. When this is over, like I'm coming home. And she's like, if you come home, you have a job. So I went home after we lost and, and worked for her. And then it was a series of Senate races and oh, just so many races. Um, yeah. Ballot initiatives, just a ton of different campaigns. And then um, eventually I wound up at the Denver Art Museum. And that's really where I fell in love with nonprofit fundraising um, and major gifts, um, philanthropy. Um, so for somebody who maybe follows politics, but has never worked in it, I mean, what's the big difference between, um, you know, major gifts and I guess traditional nonprofit fundraising and then your uh, experience in the, in the political world? I mean, I know they are very different. I've, you know, dabbled in, in each of them, but for somebody who doesn't have any experience there, like how would you mm, separate them? I would say they're night and day. <laughs> okay. So because the politics, um, in a post McCain Feingold world, um, and that is not dismissing McCain Feingold at all. Actually, I think that that um, you know any kind of campaign finance reform is probably good. Although we always find loops, loopholes, yeah, always, and there always will be. Um, so I don't know how effective it is, but because of um, the limits, you end up in this situation where. The candidate spends 30, 30, you know, to 40 hours a week just making calls because they can only accept, you know, $400 for a certain race or 
2,400 or whatever it is, depending on what you're running for. And, and so those limits um, make it very slash and burn. You know, you're just, you're turning through phone calls and introducing yourself and asking for money on the first date. Nonprofit major guess is completely different. It's like a courtship, right? It's, it's, you know, the average time to um, close a gift in major guests best practices is 18 months. Oh, wow. Um, okay. You actually don't really, if, if you have the ability and the privilege to do it right, which is often not the case, um, you actually wouldn't even want it to come in less than 18 months because you wouldn't want a smaller gift. Um, so you really want to have a long relationship with a person and a ton of time doing discovery um, to put together with the donor the exact right project. Um, and so okay. it's an ongoing relation and it never ends, right? Like as soon as you get one gift, you're thinking about like, okay, what would they want to do next? And how do we create something or find something that already exists that would really be meaningful to this person? And so it's just a relationship. It's really, I think it's really beautiful. Gotcha. So then talk through, because I want to get back to your career, but that's super interesting to me because major gifts is something I don't know a lot about. But, you know, when you put together a major gifts plan, so you look forward and say, okay, in 18 months, I guess, well, first of all, what numbers make a major gift? I mean, is it 100,000? Is it a million? Is it multiple millions? Like, where is that crossover? It's a great question. It's always the question. The question. So um, I think like a good rule of thumb, um, for me at least, is that an annual fund gift is X. So that's like what Tyler gives every year to his favorite organization, right? So like every year he loves his place. No one's ever asked him for a major gift. He's giving a hundred bucks a year. So for you, a major gift would probably be 10 times your annual fund gift. Okay. So like a grand in that case, right. if using for, those numbers. That's a thousand. Okay. Or in a transformational gift. So transformational giving is even more fun than major gifts. Transformational gift for Tyler is probably going to be a hundred times his um, annual gift. So gotcha. Okay. If you just look because often, you know, people will say, okay, well, a major gift is $10,000. Well, first of all, for a lot of organizations, a major gift is a hundred dollars or 500 or a thousand. And I think a major gift is really what it is to the donor. Okay. But there, there certainly has to be, obviously, if you're running a multi, multi-million dollar organization, you know, a $10,000 gift, although extremely helpful, is not going to, you know, keep the lights on for more than a week or two. So I guess, how do you then, when you're working with nonprofits, divide up, like, uh, like what are the, I don't want to say the real major gifts, but the major gifts that are going to, like, fund the organization for the year versus, like, okay, great, you know, if we can get a couple $10,000 checks, that's really nice, but we're going to burn through that in salaries or whatever in a couple of weeks. So how do you... Um, I guess, map that out for an organization? So, I mean, we have client, you know, we work with different departments at the University of Colorado and obviously major gifts for the University of Colorado versus like, you know. Right, the local, you know, pet shelter or something, right? right? right. Totally different. Um, And so what you have often at like a CU and I, I, I suspect probably at CSU as well, you'll have a few people who are principal gift officers and they're the ones that are looking for the really big giant gifts. And so okay. they may have like a very tiny portfolio of maybe like five donors. Whereas mm-hmm. everybody else who's sort of doing major gifts, which is the majority of your um, staff at a foundation, um, they are, you know, looking between like 10 and 250,000 or maybe 10 and a million, 10,000 a million. And then these other people are looking at the whales, like how am I going to get this 20 million, a hundred million? Um, but they have this really tiny, tiny portfolio. It's honestly, I think it's like the best job ever. I mean, that's, that's a job. Like if I were ever to have a boss again, like, which is probably never going to happen. That's the kind of job I would do because I, because I like the strategy. It's extremely strategic and it's like hours and hours of negotiations. And I don't, I just think it's really fun. Right. And you mean like chasing, chasing the whales, right? The big the big donors. So what is that strategy again? Cause not something I'm familiar with. So you talked about earlier, you mentioned 18 months. It takes 18 months from, you know, uh, ideally to, to get the gift to close. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that strategy? I mean, are, are, how do you get those connections? Is it like, Hey, you were just randomly introduced to somebody. Is it, you know, sending them mailers and reaching out to them, trying to develop a relationship? Like what is a, a major gift if, if you're chasing whales, right? So to speak, what does that look like? So this is, thank you for asking this question. And this is going to be, um, this is going to be uh, my public service announcement. Okay, uh, great. For, for the rest of the year. So 
what fundraisers don't have is a treasure trove or a treasure chest full of donors that they bring from job to job. That's not a thing. And if it is a thing, it's actually, I would consider it quite unethical because really in best practices, what you're doing is you're matching a donor with their actual passion, right? So if I work, let's say I work with like a cancer organization and now I work for an, with an ALS organization and the ALS organizations like Melanie, like, why don't you bring us that lady who gave, you know, $10 million to this cancer organization? Well, that's not, her passion is an ALS. She's mm -hmm. not going to, that's not what she's going to do. So really the way that you mine your donors to find those, those diamonds or whatever, those really high level givers is within your or own organization. They're usually housed there, right? So they're usually, they're the person who gives a hundred bucks a month and they show up at every event and they get, you get notification that they're going to leave you in their estate plans. They're sleepers. So it's, it's often people who don't have like monstrous wealth. It's people who have huge passion. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, like the, the foundation of the Denver Art Museum, like the largest gift from the Denver Art Museum came from a high school teacher, uh, Denver Public wow. Schools. So you just never know. And that, that, I actually, one of the huge donors that I worked with when I was at CU at the Anschutz Medical Campus was from here, from Fort Collins. Nobody knew she had money. She didn't want anybody to know that she had money. And she um, did a $3 million gift. And for the department I was working at, that was huge. That was huge. Mm -hmm. And she had a lot more money than that, but she did not want anybody to know. So hmm. I, and that's why it's so fun. It's like, it is sort of like, um, hunting for treasure a bit, you know? So you're really looking internally first, right? You're looking at like, who are our biggest supporters? So in a lot of ways, you're looking for heart first and then the checkbook to match rather than chasing the, the checkbook, if you will. Right. And I mean, so there's, you know, we always talk in fundraising about the, the art and the science, right? So the art is the love and the passion and the, the beauty of what philanthropy can be. And then the science is, yes, we wealth screen our donors. <laughs> so yes, if, you know, if I work with you and you're going to create a uh, major donor plan, then we're going to use my donor search tool and we're going to scan all your donors and we're going to figure out what their actual, you know, get a little bit closer to what their net worth is to say, hey, here are your, these are your sleepers that you didn't know were here. Gotcha. And so you, you talk about then the, yeah, the science behind it, right? So you just have basically a database that you pay for that gives, you know, kind of estimations of people's net worth or, you know, is it just meeting in person with a lot of donors? Like what does that process of, of the panning for gold, right, look like uh, tactically? Well, so the smartest um, rich people hide their money really well, right? Sure, so right. Smartest rich people, I'm going to do donor search and I'm not going to find anything, right? I'm going right. to find nothing. Probably not even their house because they probably already put that in their kid's name. So I probably won't find anything because they, you know, are really great at avoiding um, taxation. So, mm -hmm. um, so what I, definitely it's a mixture of conversations with people to sort of get a sense of what they're passionate about you know, maybe what their um, capacity is, but also, um, you know, it's not enough for them to be rich. So why I use the tool um, called donor search versus other tools is um, I can see what they give to. So it is, they've mined so much data to say, you know, they gave this much to see you, they gave this much um, individually. Uh, so I can kind of get a sense of, well, this person over time has given $25 million away. Like it shows that they don't, you know, own many assets, but wow, look at all this. Gotcha. So, so it's a combination. Um, but I mean, that's where the fun it's, you know, major guest fundraisers are voyeurs. You know, we're really curious. We're curious about people. We ask a lot of questions. We, um, we're, we naturally want to know everything about a person we meet. Like I, my heaven is going into a room where I don't know anybody because I'm like, oh, I get to meet all these new people and learn everything about them. Right, right. Like, like, I'd just rather go where I already know everybody. So that's like, that's not very fun to me. Sure. And because I'm largely the opposite. I don't mind meeting new people. Like I'm very comfortable having a conversation, meeting new people, but I prefer to go deeper on relationships I already have. So uh, 
for my own curiosity, how do you, when you walk into a room with that, I mean, is it just going up to people, introducing yourself? I mean, do you have any uh, tips for those of us who are maybe a bit more on the introvert spectrum? I, I don't know because I just, I so just natural. Yeah. About everyone. Like, like with you, like if you and I were having coffee, I'd be like, so tell me about your family and like, where were you actually born? No, where were you really born? And like, cause I, I don't know. I, I think it's like a curiosity that you probably have or you don't have. My friend Holly, who's a huge, by the way, like so social, like she's just like total leader in Denver. She's like, I always bring you because you're the best wing person ever. Cause I know that I don't really even have to say anything. You'll just do it all, which is true. Right. So yeah. I guess you don't have advice. I mean, I think if you have a natural curiosity about person, or even if you had a natural curiosity about one thing, and you knew that you could ask 10 people and you learned something that was really fun to you or cool to you. It, yeah. A- I mean, that's why I do the podcast though, right? Is because oh, I yeah. get to sit down here and query you and yeah. many other people about, you know, everything we've talked about investments, venture cap, not necessarily you and I, but we're yeah. digging into nonprofits and fundraising, you know, and, and I, that's why I love doing the podcast is because I think it's a bit more of a formalized uh, maybe way to do it, but yeah. yeah, cause it's exactly the same thing. I'm like, well, how does major gifts work? Like I, I need to understand this cause I don't know anything about this. And don't you love it when people ask you hard questions like that or, or not hard questions, but questions that are like a little deeper. Like I love that. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it shows, you know, there's like the, like I was hanging out with some guys this weekend and I didn't know, you know, friends of friends and they're like, what do you do? You know, and I usually start with like, oh, I work in marketing, hundred percent true. You know, and then if they ask follow-up questions, then I elaborate and talk about all we get to do on ads and search and, you know, uh, ABM and, you know, all the really, like, to me that I just get excited. Like, I love helping businesses grow. But if they're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Then I don't, you know, I don't like, I don't go a lot deeper. You just sort of wait and see if people are interested. My favorite thing is with, with what I do, everyone's like, is that a job? Or do you get paid to do that? And I'm like, do you really think I'm my career is that unskilled. <laughs> like, I, yeah. Well, I mean what you're doing, it, don't get paid for. Yeah. I mean, you're really doing sales, right? You know, which is hard. Like sales is not super easy and, but you're doing it. You're not even selling, you know, a value prop necessarily directly to the person about their own benefit. It's almost a, a feel good. It's something that's very intangible, right? Yeah. Like uh, major gifts are so intangible. Um, so I, I having, had to do sales, right? I have a deep respect for, for fundraising. Like I hate asking for money in exchange for something, you know, I've gotten fairly good at it. Right. But let alone asking for money in exchange for nothing. Right. I use air quotes with that, but so. No, I, believe me. I agree. There are times when I'm like, this thing is killing my soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then do you guys filter, uh, I mean, do you pick nonprofits that you really like to work with as clients? Uh, probably on the political side, especially like you tend to maybe stick with one particular party or one particular side. We're pretty particular on the political side because, um, there's a lot of collateral damage that comes from campaigns and I've experienced it too many times to count, um, Mm -hmm. being on the right, wrong side of somebody who, you know, ends up in a really powerful position and, um, And so we're really careful. You know, we were presented with one this year that I found so unethical that we, we had to say no. Um, to me, it's my values. Like, sure, I, sure, sure. You know what I mean? Right, obviously and, for someone else, there, it's important. Yeah, some other people would be fine with it. Um, although it was funny, I was, with, I was having like lunch with like a group of my girlfriends a couple weeks ago and one friend was like, just don't judge me. Don't even look at me because... She was working on something that everyone was like, oh, dude, it's so gross. Come on. She's like, "Ah!" yeah, yeah. Um, So then let's, so thank you for allowing my curiosity to sort of take us down the major gifts. So let's circle back to your career. Cause at one point you were also, uh, you and your husband were a host on a TV show um, on the travel channel. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And when we were, it was really, it feels like a really long time ago now. And it was, it was before we had kids. Um, we were, our good friends, Mike and Des were stopped. Um, I think they were like in Confluence Park or something like on bikes in Denver. And they were stopped by casting directors um, from Dis- Discovery Channel at the time owned Travel Channel. So um, I don't know if they were with Discovery or Travel. I think maybe Discovery, but 
they were stopped and, and they said, hey, you should really try out for this show. We're looking for a couple who will travel around the world. Um, and it's, it's going to be called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And I, of course, own the book like so many other people own the book. I think I have like four copies of it up there. Um, and, and I just, it's so funny because like Des called me. Albin was feeling sick that day. He was like, I'm not doing this. We're not going to get it anyway. And I was like, if we go, we are getting it. So Des called me and said, hey, Mike and I are going to go down to this casting call. Uh, do you just, do you want to come? And, and you guys should try out too. It'd be fun. So what was funny is, so this is like one of my very best friends. So we both made it to the final 20. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then we were chosen and um, ultimately. And right. so it was so funny because the, the producers were like, is this really hard? Like your best friend is kind of in this with, you know, competing against you. Um, so anyway, we were chosen, um, as the couple to travel around the world and it was the trip of a lifetime. It was like winning the lottery. I mean, truly like travel is like pretty much the only hobby I have. Um, I don't do anything. I don't really ski. I don't really do anything except watch a ton of television and work. So, um, and have kids, but so, so this was like the best possible thing that could ever happen to me personally. Um, awesome. So did you, uh, one season, two seasons? I mean, did you make it to a thousand, did you see all thousand things or how did that work? Places, but a place could be, you know, a restaurant or a temple or a monastery or whatever. So, um, I think we did 14 countries and, um, and we were on, on the road the whole time. So it was pretty, I know it sounds dumb. I'm not complaining. It was, it was pretty exhausting to, you know, have a mic on 12 hours a day and, um, yeah. And, and how long were you, so these 14 countries, how long were you traveling with them or through them? Um, so each country would be like a week. Sometimes we would do two countries in a week. It just depended on where we were geographically. Right. How so, yeah. Craziest things that happened on that trip. Any fun stories? Craziest things were not on film and probably should not be. <laughs> but, <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, we went shark cage diving, um, wow. which was really fun. We, I'm afraid of heights. So basically everything we did had some element of terrifying heights. So if you ever watch the show, it's just me crying for 14 weeks. Just stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump off of a mountain. Um, right. So hang gliding and uh, just uh, like the Sydney bridge climb. I mean, just everything that scares me to death. Um, we ate a lot of bugs, which I'm fine with. I don't have a problem with that. Um, my husband, that was like the thing he would dread. I would be like crying every day leading up to going um, hang gliding. And he would be like, we have to eat a worm. I don't want to do it. And so we ate ants. We ate crickets. Which crickets are no big deal. Um, and then we ate um, maggots. Just a lot of bad stuff. But Oh, wow. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, so best maybe takeaways, because obviously being on you know TV, being mic'd up for 12 hours a day, you learn probably a lot about mm, performance, you know, in a sense you're acting, right? I mean, even, you know, I know it's a re reality TV show, but you're still acting, you're still being, being present. I guess, you know, takeaways or anything you learned during that experience that you still use? I mean, it, it's interesting because I, there were a lot of uh, parallels to me with politics for the crew because they're working like incredibly long hours. They don't have days off. They're, you know, coaching us. And so it's, it's very much like working with a candidate and doing advance, um, you know, making sure everything's perfect before the candidate gets there and making sure there's a crowd. And so, so there, if to me, I was like, God, like the, this is like an alternate bizarro version of my career. Um, so you were, you were the, candidate right in that right, situation right, right, yeah, where right. they're preparing everything for you they're like you're going to go here then you're going to go here you're going to talk to these people you're going to do this yeah so um so that was wild and and really cool to see just how i mean we became really close with the crew we're still really close with a couple people from it um so that was really enlightening to me but i think the biggest thing is just like i can't watch travel shows now because i know like i all anyone says is, this is amazing. This is awesome. And that was me. 
this is amazing. I mean, it's like a drinking game. Like I, we told our friends, like there's a drinking game. It's called how many times do we say this is amazing. Right. And now when I watch anyone else's show, I'm like, Oh, I can't do it. Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) And Um, so how much of that, you know, in hindsight, right? How much of it was like, Oh, this is like legit, genuinely amazing. I'm sure there was a lot of that. How much was, was it sort of hammed up for the camera? Cause you can't walk in and be like, you know, like this is average. Like you can't do that. I assume. Well, so this, that is hilarious that you ask this and I'm really hoping I don't get in trouble for have, for you having this on any kind of air, but Patricia Schultz who wrote a thousand places to see before you die was like, you didn't look that impressed at the Taj Mahal. And at that point, we'd just been traveling for like a really long time. I was so tired. I was sick. I was really sick. And so I'm like, and I, the Taj Mahal was amazing. Of course it was incredible, but I just didn't feel well. So I was like, Taj Mahal. <laughs> right. And Patricia's like, yeah, you didn't look that impressed. Um, so, so there were definitely moments where you're just like, you've been traveling for so long that it's like, oh shit, that's just another thing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, because I've been um, in sort of a a previous life, right? Before I got into marketing, I used to do a lot of um, events. So big rock and roll shows meets a summer camp sort of thing, traveling around the country. So I I think I understand a little bit of that. We weren't in planes. We were mostly, you know, in vans though, but you're setting up uh, events, you know, till one, two in the morning, you're tearing them down. You're, you know, you sneak a nap in, you know, if you have an afternoon off wherever you can. Um, But Yeah, I think for people who've never lived that lifestyle, like it's wonderful, but it's also very, very grueling, especially if you don't have a weekend off just to relax, you know, because you get to these beautiful places and you walk by, you snap a couple of photos, you can, you can send your friends, but you were there for 20 minutes, you know, and then you're on to the next thing. Totally. I mean, it, everything gets old. Yeah. Everything, you know, um, I remember Albin and I, one day we were in Alaska, we went to Walmart and we went to, we saw Little Miss Sunshine. It was when it came out in the theaters. And that was all we did that day. And Alvin goes, this was the best day of the trip. <laughs> it was just the two of us. And we weren't mic'd and we weren't right. in an airport. We weren't moving anything. And it was just like, we bought socks at Walmart. And it just was so awesome, you know, to do like normal. And when we hadn't driven a car in like five months, we were in Hawaii and Albin drove and was like, oh my God, I'm driving. And I'm like, oh, you're driving, we're driving. Like it was so exciting to drive, you know? Right, right, for sure. Good. So final kind of topic I wanted to chat with you is, so you've done a bunch um, supporting other female entrepreneurs, female fundraisers. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences with, I mean, you've started businesses and, and you know, organizations that are really focused on that. Can you talk about, you can either dig into like the organizations you've worked with or just in general as a society, how can we better support female entrepreneurs, you know, in, in their, in their journey? I mean, I think you'll wish this soapbox never, never. <laughs> your, your chance, your I chance. A lot of things to say. Um, Oh my God, where to begin? Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's getting to be a like tired wine from women, including me that, um, you know, investment dollars, they go to men and VC dollars go to, go to male entrepreneurs. And there's, it's so disproportionate. It's sick and women of color, like way down the list. And so, I mean, I, I know that that's starting to change and you're getting to see VC funds that are run by women, for women. Um, but as, I mean, truly, like, it's, it's remarkably bad. And I mean, four or five years ago, I was consulting with a bank um, on our philanthropic side. And I was like, you don't have a single woman on your board of directors, nor do you have a person of color. Like, how are you okay with that? Well we're just okay with that. And our, our customers don't care. And so then I started making decisions in my personal life based on that. Like if the board doesn't have a woman or a woman or a person of color, and frankly, they should have at least a third. I mean, not even asking for parity, like women are 52% of the population. I'm not even asking for 50%. Give me 30, you know, or I don't want to work with you because you so show your disrespect for me every day. Right. Even though you know that I'm half the population or more than half the population. And, and so it's, it's tiring and it's sad. And I'm not even a person of color in which you like magnify it all significantly, you know? And so I, my advice to female entrepreneurs is like, find your girl gang, 
because they are the ones that are going to help you. Nobody, don't rely on anybody else. Find your girl gang and you guys throw down on each other and for each other and support each other's businesses first. Okay. Before you support anybody else's. And, and for women, like if you're not going to walk the walk, like don't talk the talk. Like if you're not going to try to find a female lawyer and you know, if you're not going to pretend like you care about parity and equity, like don't, don't even talk about it because you have to like, you have to do the work. You have to fire your bank if they don't have women on the board of directors or any women in the C-suite. Like you've got to be a big girl and do that stuff. And so I think that when women entrepreneurs start doing those like big girl things, they are more successful because other women want to support them. And I think other men do. I mean, I'm not going to leave men out of this equation. I think there are a lot of men who really find it quite disheartening, the lack of equity and parity that we see um, with VC dollars, with just getting business in general. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a tirade I could go on for hours, but I just, I just want women to like give women a chance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Like, I mean, I guess I'm harder on women than I am on men because I'm like, you know better. You know better. Right. You've maybe been on, on both sides of the, the issue. Right. Um, you no. can't, you're not as naive maybe. And I'm not making excuses for men. I'm not trying to do that, but, but they're not. And they, so anyway, so, and, but I think like my girl gang, like the, the women that I started working with in politics 20 years ago are still the ones that are there for me today. And they, I mean, we sort of commit to each other. Like, what do you want in your life? Do you want to run for office? Okay. How much do we need to raise? Do you want to start a company? Okay. How much, how much, equity do you need to like what do you need for us to make you successful and I have this woman who's just recently started hanging out with sort of my girlfriends and I was like this is crazy like you guys mean it I'm like well yeah why would we say it if we didn't mean it you know sure so I think and I think dudes have been doing that for each other forever um and it wasn't organized men just like that's the way that they were socialized to you know you know, you, you help my son get the job at the bank and then I'm going to, I'm going to mentor him. And women just didn't have that same kind of path. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't learn that. And so I think that we have to kind of create it more intentionally. So, yeah. So maybe let's dig into one part of that. So VC dollars, you know, you've mentioned that a couple of times. I mean, what are some ways, because I think, especially with VC dollars, obviously venture capitalists typically are investing um, you know, some invest from their heart, right? Meaning that, yes, I want to support female entrepreneurs, but a lot, a lot of them are, are looking at it from a, how do I get rich? You know, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the question, right? Mm -hmm. So how do, um, so when I see funds that are like, oh, we're only going to fund female entrepreneurs, like I won't have a deep respect for that. But also if, if it was my money on the line, I'd be like, well, don't we just want to, you know, maybe try and fund the companies most likely to succeed given that some of them will be women. So I guess, I don't even really know what to ask, but something along the lines of like, how do we get more women to be, you know, successful, right? And, and position them for success. Cause those, I think the VC dollars will then flow to the companies that are going to be more successful, if that makes sense. So how do we back that up and say, okay, if you're a female founder or a person of color, like how do we, besides just throwing money at the problem, right? How do we actually help, help them succeed so that they can attract dollars because they have the best company, if you will. So I, I mean, I have a very simple answer to your complex question, Okay. Uh, which is avoid VC dollars. Okay. Because I think that there are more angel investors and in, in more like private equity deals that understand that, that if you sort of raise all boats, then women writ large are going to be more successful and those businesses are going to be more successful because they will, because when you're coming from you know, a lot of women, you know, who start companies are, don't have an MBA. They don't have any sort of mentorship. They don't, they never knew a female entrepreneur ever. So it's, it's quite different than, than just coming out of the gate as a male entrepreneur. Um, there's a lot less of an example for you, frankly. Um, and we're still kind of outliers. So I would say just avoid VC dollars. And, and this is, this is the difference between men and women. I think also is like a lot of women don't have that same drive. I mean, some do, some do, I mean, clearly to scale, mm. right? Like, like a lot of women are like, okay, I want to create this company because I think it's going to really help, you know, moms do this. I'm going to, I want to create this company because it's going to help kids do this. And yes, I want to make money, but like, 
It's not about scale. And VC dollars are all about scale, right? And an exit, scale, exit, scale, exit. That may not be what you want. And so I think that dealing with private equity or dealing with, you know, just straight angel investors is actually smarter because then you don't have the same expectations. Interesting. So it sounds like really for, I mean, I think for all businesses and actually just on the last episode of this podcast, we, I talked uh, with a gentleman uh, a lot about this. I'm like, when do VC dollars make sense? Like, okay, if you're, if it's going to be a lifestyle business, a slow, steady growth, or even a rapid growth, but you're not trying to hit, you know, world domination in the first two years, like maybe, yeah, taking on millions of VC dollars doesn't make sense. And so it sounds like to me that maybe even um, sometimes, right. I don't want to, you know, paint too broadly, but uh, sometimes female entrepreneurs tend to be more balanced in their approach rather than like, we're going to totally take over the world. It's like, yes, I want to do all the things and a successful business is a, is a part of that. Right. Exactly. So I think that just, especially for your first business, avoid VC doll. I mean, I've seen friends of mine be destroyed by venture capital, like just their businesses eviscerated, sold, you know, at the bottom of the barrel to, to people for like, pennies on the dollar. They lost everything. Um, I mean, there's one in particular is like just absolutely devastating. And, mm-hmm. and so I would just avoid it. And it's interesting it's, to hear that. I didn't get what we were trying to do. Like every, VC, with our company, with our women's co-working space, every VC we met with did not understand what we were doing. Hmm. And then we met with, you know, private equity investors who were like, this is cool. Like I, I'm into this. Um, so it was a much different conversation. My favorite was a dude being like, so why would women want to work with other women? And I'm, (laughs) I don't know how to answer this for you. I mean, there's a sisterhood that why are there sororities? Why are there fraternities? Like, because women want to work with other women. Um, so anyway, and then it was like, well, why don't, why can't it just be, um, our company was women in kind. Um, why can't it just be persons in kind? I'm like, Hey dudes, you have this whole world. You've been running stuff for a very long time. You're, you're okay. <laughs> right. Our little tiny piece of the pie. Sure. Well, it sounds, I think the other thing is, you know, you have experience with venture capital deals and I've had a little bit of experience with them that went uh, south, you know, and just were not, not good for the entrepreneur, maybe not even good for the venture capitalist. Um, and it sounds like, again, I don't want to dig into the story because I think it's someone else's story, right? But they just get messy. You know, and you always hear about the companies that raised a ton of money and then IPO'd or sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, you, you hear about the, the winners, but you don't hear about all the blowups, you know, all the times people lost money, right? Because that doesn't make headlines in TechCrunch or, you know, even in your local, local paper. So I think uh, just caution people who want to take on, you know, angel or VC dollars or any outside funding that, you know, be sure you know what you're getting into, uh, at least as much as possible. Definitely. So, um, well, good. Any, uh, anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked about your background? Um, I think you, you, one thing that, um, that might be worth talking about is back to sort of fundraising, how people, um, get into the field and, and why. And I, I think that, I think there's a lot of perception that there is no money in, in working in the nonprofit world and then also working in, in fundraising. And I would just say that that's actually not true. And, and so there, there are ways, I mean, it's, it's not the same as in the, in the private sector, but there are ways to, um, to have a very lucrative career in fundraising, particularly if you're, you know, at a medical institution or in higher education. Um, and so a lot of people with like more commercial job skills um, don't pursue those avenues because they, they don't think that they'll make enough money. But I would argue that actually there, we should have more of those types of people who are, who are very bottom line driven, who are very sales driven in our industry um, and that they can have the kind of lifestyle that they want. Um, It may not be, you know, you may not be pulling in $500,000 a year, but you can make a, you can make a really good living um, and it can be a really rewarding career. And so I just think that a lot of people write it off as like, no, I don't want to be poor. Well, you don't have to be. I mean, right it's a real career. It's a professionalized career and, and, and you can have a really, you can have a really great life and lifestyle. So, 
So how do you, how does someone break into that? Obviously you came up through politics, you know, so that's one way, but if you're, uh, you know, to the kids who maybe just graduated college or are like, Hey, you know, it sounds really fun. Like I do have a bit of a fundraising sales bent. I was going to go, you know, work for a tech startup, but like I have a heart for, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, initiative. Like how do you, how do you get started? I mean, I think that, you know, most people fall into fundraising. It's not intentional. I mean, I didn't even know it was a career when I went to college. You know, I wouldn't have known that I could get into this field because no one ever said this is, this is a job. Um, and so I think for one thing, um, I, I think schools should be sharing that this is a career path that, that nonprofit leadership in, in undergrad, because certainly in grad school, you know, you hear all this if you're pursuing, you know, a, an MPA or a nonprofit um, leadership certificate or something like that. Um, but in undergrad, you really don't hear about it. So I, w- I would just say that like, um, if you were an undergrad, make sure that you're asking those questions like are, you know, how do I get into a, into a career nonprofit leadership? And what would that look like? And, and you really, you don't need to have a master's. I know so many people who have law degrees or master's degrees and they work and they do exactly what I do. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I got off cheap. Um, <laughs> right. Save $200,000. I dropped out of grad school three times. Um, and I don't make any less than you. So, so anyway, um, I would just say that like, don't, don't, don't pursue a master's degree in it. Just volunteer or just like get an entry level job and just do the work and see if you like it. And if you do, then just make your way up the ladder. Just, just do the hard work and you will get to where you want to be. And it yeah. can be a really, really rewarding, amazing career. Um, mm-hmm. but I do think a lot of people spend a lot of money on graduate school just to have the same job as me. Um, and that's not necessary. Yeah. And I have a couple of friends who have done that, went to school back in Indiana, you know, for philanthropy, oh. something, some kind of master's, you know, and they've been the school. <laughs> yeah. Like fairly, fairly successful. Um, but I also think it's so relational. You know, and I think that's uh, the one thing is, and we've even talked, or you mentioned, I think, in we'd had conversations about grants and foundations are often relationship driven. Like, yes, you have to, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's, put together the reporting, put together the documentation. But often, you know, they'll know or at least have some pretty good idea like that they're going to fund you before you ever go. And I think there's this idea that is taught in school of like, Oh, if you just like write a great grant and you, you know, wordsmith the heck out of it, that it's going to, you're just going to get millions of dollars from these grants when in fact it's so relationship driven. Completely. And that, that I remember being like 25 or 26 years old and going to like a grant writing program in Indiana. Um, and thinking, Oh, they're going to teach me how to write there in, and I'm already like a decent writer. And, it came out and it was just like, oh yeah, it's still just relationships. <laughs> right, right. So awesome. Uh, good. So people want to connect with you. Uh, philanthropyexpert.com. Uh, org. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we're also, Philanthropy Expert is on um, Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn. So those are also good ways to reach out. Good. So they can find you there. Cool. Well, Mel, thank you so much for your time. I know it's super valuable, um, but I appreciate it. I learned a lot. I always love uh, being able to be curious and ask a lot of these questions. So thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. Have a good day.